Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best Chris Columbus movie. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcasts should have a theme song. Podcasts should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Hal, you know, there are some directors, when you watch their movies, Mm -hmm. you know that you are going to get some art. And then there's Chris Columbus. Wow. Do you just want to like, <laughs> do we come to bury Caesar or to praise him? Which I don't, wasn't sure which. I mean that you know me well enough yeah. to know that saying that something is more entertainment than art mm. is not an insult. That's true. I love how entertaining his movies are. Chris Columbus makes blockbusters about family. Yeah. You're not watching for him to say anything hugely important about society. You're not watching for a gritty, in-depth study of a dying industry. No, you want to watch heartwarming stories about families. And that is what I love about Chris Columbus movies. It's interesting you bring up families because looking at his oeuvre, as it were. Which is French for eggs. Which is French for eggs. If you look at his eggs, you'll notice (laughs) that there is a running theme in his films of family, including – his early movies that he wrote, those being Gremlins and Goonies, mm-hmm. those were – I mean he really sort of made his hay as a writer initially. Fun story about him. This – by the way, this topic was suggested by Jeff Babby or Baby. But Jeff Thank Baby. Thank you, Jeff. Sorry for jumping for, back in. Hey, Jeff Baby. Jeffy Baby. Thank Jeffy you for the Baby. Topic. Hey, thanks for hey. the topic. Sorry we jumped right into it, but we're very excited. We like Chris Columbus. Jeffy Baby. You get it. Hey, come on, baby. Um, uh, he, he was working with Spielberg. He did a lot mm-hmm. of early work with Spielberg and it was Spielberg's intention that, that he would write the screenplay to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So he met and essentially worked as a secretary for Lucas and Spielberg as mm-hmm. Lucas gave him like, here, I'm going to dictate the entire screenplay to you. And when Chris Columbus looked at what he had, he said, this seems really flat and and kind of uninteresting. It needs, I know a million different ways I would take this that I think would improve it, but this is George Lucas. Mm-hmm. This is someone regarded among filmmakers among his fans as one of the greatest storytellers of all time. Mm-hmm. What right do I have to rewrite anything? I don't want to touch a single word. So he, he essentially typed up what had been dictated to him, submitted it and got fired because the screenplay was too flat. And nothing really jumped off the screen, <laughs> which was a lesson to him. Yeah. And, and he'd already had success at this point. He'd already directed his first film at that point, that being Adventures in Babysitting. Mm-hmm. So that was a lesson to him at a relatively young age to trust his instincts, which has served him well throughout his career. I don't think we have to talk about every single movie ever made. I right. think we can pull some highlights and lowlights. I think there are only three finalists here. Wow. I'm going to go out on a limb and say okay. that. But to me, the, the fact that he wrote – Gremlins and Goonies and young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. All three screenplays of his says a lot. He also is producing Gremlins three. If that ever gets made. Awesome. So he's involved. That also may be a, a just, are they going to battle the Goonies? 
I think it's going to be Gremlins versus Goonies. Oh, I remember years ago. I don't even know if I'm allowed to mention this, but maybe we'll have to cut this out. But I had a friend who was pitching that and I was so excited. This was 15 years ago, but I was so excited at the prospect of that existing. Oh, sure. And to know that Columbus wrote both of them makes perfect sense. And it does make sense if you look at his movies. They all, I said family movies before, but not only does he make movies that are generally for families, but also that explore the idea of family and loss within a family or loss of that family. Sure. In Goonies, it's all about this family being broken up, trying to prevent a family from being broken apart. And trying to keep a family together, whether that family is, you know, a bunch of 20 something people with AIDS in 1990 New York, or if that family is the Goonies, or if that family is John Candy and Maureen O'Hara in only the lonely. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Even the Christmas Chronicles part two, Mm -hmm. which just came out of which he also directed. There is a theme of family in that. There's a theme Mm -hmm. of a family, adopted family, breaking apart and coming together. And simultaneously, that's played against what happens when you've lost a parent and then your remaining parent creates a blended family with someone else. What is that like when you are so upset? You know, it explores real – as much as it is – the reason why I was saying – that it was like you were kind of throwing him aside is because it makes it sound like everything he does is pure popcorn, which I know oh, is no, not no, what no. you were saying. No. But the, he does explore heavily emotional themes, even in things like Adventures in Babysitting. That's kind of there as well, starting there and, and going all the way through Christmas Chronicles Part 2. There, there are a lot of recurring themes of family. Also, interesting note, there are no Marvel films on here, not MCU, but Marvel, which is mm-hmm. odd because he was attached to direct at least three different Marvel projects for a long time. He was going to be the guy who did Fantastic Four. It wound up being Tim Story, but yeah. that he is like a lifelong Marvel fan, which also makes it, it makes cool. sense. Starting with that first film, Adventures in Babysitting, you have Vincent D'Onofrio playing Thor, yeah. essentially, the mechanic. <laughs> but the daughter in that is... Is she wears her helmet fan, just like him. Yeah. yeah. She's a huge Thor fan. Look, it's a shame that he didn't wind up in the MCU because his movies always have such emotional relevance. And we know that Marvel movies have absolutely no emotional heartstring pulling at all. Never. I no. definitely have not cried. Yeah. I definitely multiple times. I definitely didn't almost cry watching the elevator fight from Winter Soldier this morning. <laughs> Just today, even. Just I'm today. thinking like the big moments, you know, Spider-Man grabbing a hold of Tony Stark and saying, I don't feel so good. Sure. Oh. That's easy. Yeah. That's easy. If sure. you can find a way to I love to you cry, 3000. Yeah. If you can find a way to, uh, to cry like Doctor Strange training, that's when you've reached <laughs> an apex of either an emotional issue that needs to be dealt with outside of Marvel or just an attachment to Marvel. Yeah. Maybe both. I don't know your life. What percentage of the movies do you wa- that you watch do you cry in? Of Marvel or general? General. I, I find myself crying at in movies that you're not supposed to cry in. Yeah, I do too. I have 40 to 50% lowball. Yeah. I'm not, it's not even a jo- like just This is why we have this know, show, my friend. <laughs> you never know what's going to get you. Yeah. You just never know. I don't think I I I did not see Stepmom when it came out. Mm-hmm. Which is of course about uh, dealing with a lot of things. Number one is somebody getting remarried after divorce and the, mm-hmm. and the children have to deal with that, especially when the mother is not interested in the mother played by Susan Sarandon, the new wife played by Julia Roberts, Ed Harris playing the ex-husband slash new husband. 
Susan Sarandon passes away from cancer. I can't deal with mm-hmm. that. I, I yeah. couldn't just knowing now how, what a journey it would be for me. But those are the things that he deals with. There's, there are heavy moments in a lot of his movies, especially I think one of the three finalists for me has very emotionally heavy moments. The other ones less so, but mm-hmm. are just, you know, either masterfully made movies. I think one of them is a perfect film. Mm-hmm. And another one is a is a big blockbuster. Well, even when he's asked to do big, giant, you know, tentpole franchise movies, I'm thinking right now of Harry Potter. He set yes. the tone for the Harry Potter movies and the emotional resonance that they needed to have. Like they have that resonance in the books. So who do you get that can handle that much and do it as deftly as he can? And you you got to get somebody like him to do it. Especially because the idea of family with Harry and his family and creating this new family, like if they hadn't latched us, if Chris Columbus hadn't latched us from the beginning, that Harry, Ron and Hermione are a family unit, not a biological family unit, but a logical family unit, then none of the rest of it would have worked. So I think that Mm -hmm. that is the thing that he does really, really well. I am so curious to hear what you think the three contenders are but should we just start mentioning some of our favorites we don't have to go through all he's directed 22 movies yes not 22 movies he's direct he's got 22 credits of things he's directed he's directed i don't know 18 movies or so yeah i think it'd be fun to talk about a couple that will not win but are worth mentioning i I got one that's kind of out of left field let's start with our personal favorites out of left field that don't we don't think have much of a shot but we want to mention oh boy I don't think it has a shot, but there's something I really like about I Love You, Beth Cooper. I never saw that. In in 2009, it's a wild – it's sort of like a wild night uh, where the nerdy valedictorian – he's played by Paul Rust – has a crush on Beth Cooper who's the hot popular girl played by Hayden Panettiere and – they wind up on like an adventure together. He says, I love you during his graduation speech. He decides he's going to tell her he's going to say, I love you, Beth Cooper. That night mm-hmm. she shows up at his door and they go on a crazy adventure together and nothing is as it seems, but it's, it's a good tight comedy. Paul Rust is really good in it. Hayden Panettiere mm-hmm. is really good in it. It's just, it's a well-made movie. There's no way it's his best movie, but I feel like kind of came at a time where there are a lot, a lot of like raunchy teen crazy one night like that was just mm-hmm. sort of hot in the in maybe the late 2000s early 2010s we were we were or had just been hot we were kind of coming off of the american pie era and yeah. i think this film kind of gets lost in the shuffle and there is good stuff in it i haven't seen it recently enough to tell you if there's anything problematic in it guessing mm-hmm. by the year it was made i'm sure there was Sure. My memory of it is that it was it was a decent winning little teen comedy, and I, I'm a sucker for a teen comedy. I thought that was a good one. Well, he started his career with a one crazy night teen comedy. True. And this one is one that I his first two movies. I I, I don't know if they have the power to make it all the way through. I know one of them probably does not, but I loved it, and that's Heartbreak Hotel. Did you ever see Heartbreak Hotel? No, but I know it's the one where the kid, the kid kidnaps Elvis to bring him to his mom. Yeah. Teenage son kidnaps Elvis. And it's the teenage son. I don't remember his name, but he's the kid that played Ferris Bueller in the TV show version of Ferris Bueller. 
Right. And uh, he kidnaps Elvis and takes him to his mom. And then El- basically it's like, you know what it is? It's like, it plays like a Hallmark movie, like three days in a small town. And the big mega star learns some things about himself and then plays in the kids battle of the bands or like plays the prom or whatever the concert so- is that like this kid gets to have Elvis in his band, fronting his band in high school. And that to me, not only did I love that movie because I grew up a huge Elvis fan, but also because the guy that played Elvis, David Keith, was yes. from Knoxville, Tennessee. And he was like, at that time when that movie came out, it was like, oh my God, this Knoxville dude is, is in this giant movie and he's starring in it, playing Elvis, Tennessee's favorite son. So as a little actor... I was, this came out in 88, so I would have been nine years old, eight and nine years old, and I'd been acting for a few years already. It blew my mind that someone from Knoxville could star in a movie. And uh, I was doing a play at the time, and he showed up backstage because he was friends with some people there, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And he had on his Heartbreak Hotel jacket, which was like, oh, David Keith likes people to know that he is David Keith. He's like, what, me, man? No, I wasn't in this movie that's on my jacket. No, I didn't play Elvis and keep the sideburns for an additional two years. Um, oh, Matt, Charlie but I love that, by the way. Charlie Schlatter. The, the and then Tuesday Weld played his mother. Yeah, that one. And then, of course, the other one, the very first movie that he made is the classic Adventures in Babysitting that you already mentioned. Of course. Look, if you first had a crush on Elizabeth Shue after The Karate Kid, mm-hmm. this is the movie that made you fall in love with her. I think this helped take her uh, take her up another level uh, as as an actor in terms of notoriety. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great – again, like Madcap Adventures in One Night. Everything goes wrong. The cl- Such a great – it's – even if you've never seen the movie, I know you've seen the poster. I know you've seen yeah, of course. the entire cast hanging from a rope. Mm-hmm. At, a, at an office building, trying to climb up a bit. It's just classic. It's a classic, like a really good movie. It's interesting that he was kind of the heir apparent to John Hughes, even though oh, he yeah. sort of sort of learned under the Spielberg tree, or that's who he both sold scripts to and mm-hmm. wrote things for. What's that so, Midwest sensibility? It's the Chicago guys, you know. Yeah. Adventures in Babysitting. When I went to school in Chicago, and it was we had we, we used to do movie nights in the quad, and Adventures in Babysitting was one of the ones that they used to play because it is one crazy night out in Chicago, right? Yeah, and it's a pretty it's a pretty perfect fun like kid, like yeah. This is like if you have a night with the babysitter that's boring after you see this movie, you feel like you've gotten robbed of an amazing crazy adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's got all the cliches like the the older son who's in love with the babysitter, who's with the wrong guy, who's played by Brad Whitford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie, and he works with uh, Anthony Rapp in that. Anthony Rapp plays the uh, mouthy best friend Daryl, who yeah. later he went back and uh, worked with, obviously in Rent. That's pretty Anthony cool. Anthony Rapp, the star of Rent. Let me ask you something. I know we're sort of. It yeah. feels like we're going through chronological order, but I'm curious to take your temperature on this. How do you feel about Only the Lonely? I think only the lonely is expert, expert actors. Mm-hmm. I only the lonely feels like it should be a play, right. except you can't make it the love letter to Chicago that that movie also is like you can't have a Chicago fire department crane on a stage. You can't have a picnic in the middle of Comiskey Park on a stage. But that movie, it's really 
it's a really intimate, like family story. It's just, and it really, you know, we were talking earlier about how he deals with family. For those who haven't seen that movie, it's John Candy at his absolute funny, sad best. You know what I mean? Like John Candy did funny, sad, like just lonely dude, funny, sad, better than anyone else ever, I think. And I think it's the best version or a one of the best versions of that. And come on, you got Maureen O'Hara playing his Irish mother. And Anthony Quinn is the neighbor that's in lo- been in love with her for 20 years. Like you is a movie full of legends. They're seen on the airplane. Uh, you've got Maureen O'Hara and Anthony Quinn in their later years, uh, flirt fighting on an airplane. <laughs> I mean, it's just actors chewing up scenery. And that's another thing I think he does really well. I think it's the thing he does really well in rent. I'm going to keep mentioning rent. Not only because I love it, but because I just saw it at the drive-in on Sunday night and was commenting then that he really just lets his actors go. He's like, you guys do your thing. He gets good actors who he trusts emotionally, and then he just lights it pretty and shoots it in beautifully framed shots. And that's what Only the Lonely feels like. What do you think of Only the Lonely? I agree with you. I do think it feels more like a play. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Not a problem, but the same feeling I had when I watched Moonstruck, mm-hmm. where I thought, "What? This is really well performed. I love the entire cast, top to bottom." Mm-hmm. Even though, in classic Nick Cave style, he's in a slightly different movie than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but that ending sequence of that film, where they all wind up in the kitchen together, mm-hmm. it's. I mean, it's a play. I'm watching. It's a John play Patrick Shanley, one of the great yeah. American playwrights. So. There is something to that where I'm like, this is everything about this hits well. I mm-hmm. like it. And yet, because it feels like a play, I look at it and go, why is this? A, when, when something is so clearly a play, I think, why do you not? Like, it feels like it needs to be adapted a little bit more. Like, there's a step missing that would mm-hmm. make it feel less presentational. That's the thing. It feels presentational. I had the same thing. With the adaptation that Denzel Washington fences, the August Wilson. Yes, the fences. Yes. Where I was like, this is great. I could watch these actors, each of them read the phone book and I'm Mm -hmm. enjoying watching it, but I feel separated from it because it feels like I'm watching a play, which I should be. I love that. I go, why is the screen? Why am I not sitting on the set with them? Because that's what I feel like with a play. I love being in, there's an energy to being in the room when actors like that are on a stage performing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it all lands fine, but I feel separated from it because I want to be there in the room watching it because yeah. it feels so theatrical. I see that. I think candy pulls you in, though. You know what I mean? You think I should eat more candy while I'm watching? Yeah. I will well, totally yes. do that. <laughs> you should eat more candy. No, I think John Candy is a kind of actor who it doesn't feel like he is presenting to you something from a stage. Like, boy, like the empathy that just – that you just like that guy is an empathy machine. Yeah. And so he really just draws you in. Like he carries, I mean, Ali Sheedy's amazing. They're all amazing in that movie, but yeah, it's just a John Candy as leading man powerhouse. It reminds right. me how good he was. Sure. And again, I think that's Columbus getting out of the way, but I see what you're saying about making it not a play, especially when he's made, when he's written movies like 
Goonies and Gremlins, which probably Gremlins couldn't be done as a play. You wouldn't want it to be. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you though? As a musical, yes. Dude, as a, as a straight play, nah. You wouldn't want to go see a straight play of Gremlins. They would have to have assorted places around the stage where the puppeteers could hide. Exactly. I mean, it would be fun to be in a show like that. I feel like you would feel real good about it, but I don't know if I want to say it. I would love to stage door a play like that. Like at the end, you're just standing outside waiting with your playbill, and then the gremlins all come out at the same time in their like, you know, just their civilian clothes. Some of them are like, yeah, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I turn it off when I leave the theater. And some of them are just psychos. Do you know that Stripe will stay for two and a half hours until every autograph is signed after that a is, show? That, well, you got to be careful because if that goes until after midnight, luckily it's not a long play. It's a one act. He eats three people each time. It's fine. <laughs> are there any others? I only have one other that kind of stands out to me as one that is a finalist. Not a finalist, but one that I like that is not going to be a finalist. Yeah, I mean, there's some great ones. There's some great movies he directed. I think we haven't talked about the finalists yet, but I mean, I just want to once again shout out Rent and how great I think that is as a film adaptation. Not only because, I mean, I did just watch it, so it's the movie that's freshest in my mind. Sure, that's okay. But I love the trust that Chris Columbus had in making that movie. Not only in the way that he shot it and giving them the freedom to do their thing, but also in the fact that he brought back most of the original Broadway cast 10 years after they had put the show up in New York, after the show had premiered on Broadway. Uh, yeah. Cause this was, it came out in 2005. I guess the show premiered in 1996 or won the Tony in 96. Yeah. And so like, you know, it, it had been a while. Like, these guys aren't the right age for those characters anymore. They're not, like, <laughs> dealing with, you know what I mean? Like, they're not right. dealing with the same things in their lives. There, But just that decision alone gives me mad respect for it. And there's a scene in that, and it's a thing that I think Chris Columbus does really well, which is he can do so much with a single moment so elegantly. There's a moment where they're all singing the title song of the show. They're singing the chorus, we're not going to pay rent, right? They take their eviction notice and they light it on fire and they open up the window to their loft, which is overlooking all of the other windows in this, you know, sort of street alley combo in New York. And yes, it's a musical production number, so stuff like this happens, but everyone has they're not the only ones holding burning eviction notices out the window everyone in that whole building l-shaped complex thing has a lit on fire eviction notice out the window and that in an instant says this is a community they're all going through the same thing and that's all it took to say that was just that moment i think he does a great job of moments like that so I'm throwing Rent into the mix of my personal favorites. Do I think it's his best? No. I think we can say, well, what do you think the three are? Do you want me to say now? Yeah. I mean, okay, do you have, me, do you have any more out, that you don't think it's going to be? one more I like but don't love, which is mm -hmm. Nine Months. It's a charming movie with Julianne Moore and Hugh Grant when he's at the height of his initial Hugh Grantness. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have a one night stand. She gets pregnant and then they're together. I think it's a one night stand. They may even be a couple. I bet I remember seeing it in the theater and being, this is really charming. Yeah. It's a really sweet movie. It's about becoming a parent and him coming to grips with that because he's Hugh Grant playboy. Yeah. It's a very different, it's a different Hugh Grant than the Hugh Grant you get in Notting Hill. 
mm-hmm. where he is he is a playboy in this, but so he's not he's a little more confident. It's yeah, closer to it's Bridget Swagger Jones, Grant, Grant rather than Stammer Grant. Exactly, hundred percent. I think that is a good one. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do right now. Okay, we're going to take a break right now mm-hmm. before we get to what I think are our finalists, and we'll see if we agree. If not, we'll mm-hmm. figure it out. But first, we got to take a break. So you can hear about some of the other great shows on the Max Fun Network and who knows what else at this point. Ooh. Hey there, beautiful people. Did you hear that good, good news? Something about the baby Jesus? Mm, he's coming back. Or do you mean the fact that <laughs> Apple Podcasts has named Fanti one of the best shows of 2020? I mean, we already knew that we was hot stuff, but a little external validation never hurts, okay? Hosted by me, writer and journalist Jared Hill. And me, the ebony enchantress myself, <laughs> <laughs> Travel Anderson. Fanti is your home for complex conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the people, places, and things. We're huge fans of, but got some anti-feelings toward. You name it, we fan-tie you. Nobody's off limits. Check us out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your Slayworthy audio. I'm Jesse Thorne. On the next Bullseye, we've got the one and only Ted Danson. We'll talk about his new show, Mr. Mayor, about Cheers, and about the secret to success in comedy. I mean, I, I feel like one of your signature comedic moves at this point uh, in your career is gazing. Uh, You do a lot of interesting gazing. (laughs) I also love this. Gazing. I love that. And if I'm not, I'm going to start because that's great. That's Bullseye. Find it on MaximumFun.org, NPR.org, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, we're back. What did we hear about? Use your imagination and you will be right, my friend. (laughs) You will be right. All right. What do you think of the big three? I think the big three Mm -hmm. are Home Alone, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Doubtfire, Mm -hmm. and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Absolutely. You will get no argument from me. Anything else you want to add to that? Of the ones he's directed? No, I enjoyed Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. I thought it was fun. I thought it was, well... We don't have any more Harry Potter for you. So um, here's this in the meantime. Is here's what another series we're, like. we're adapting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It felt like, uh, hey, did you guys like Harry Potter? Okay, now it, instead of magic, it's uh, the Greek gods. Ready, go. And it was fine. It was fun. But it was not. I didn't think it was special. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I think. And he did, too. He did Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. He moved to England for a year and a half to film those. And the reason Mm -hmm. he didn't direct the third one is because he wanted to see his family again. Let's start with that movie. A couple of interesting facts about it. Those books, particularly Sorcerer's Stone, helped Mm -hmm. his daughter learn how to read. And she asked him to make the movie of it. Now, Spielberg was initially attached to direct, and then he dropped Mm -hmm. out. Columbus campaigned really hard with Warner Brothers. And mm-hmm. with, with J.K. Rowling, and he said, "Look, whoever you're meeting with, just meet with me last." And he got a hold of the script and did a rewrite of it for free, and brought oh, wow. that in, and that helped get him the job. He also pushed really, really hard for Daniel Radcliffe to play Harry Potter, even mm-hmm. though his dad didn't like. You know, I think a lot of people may be familiar with that story that he really wanted Daniel Radcliffe, and they saw different actors, and he just kept on and on. Mm-hmm. But Daniel Radcliffe's parents were adamant that he makes school his priority and then they went to see a show chris columbus went to see his show and daniel radcliffe and his father were in the front row and they went and talked to them and that sort of started the negotiation process that led to daniel radcliffe playing harry potter and And the rest 
the rest is history. He was fantastic. Yeah. It is not an easy thing to adapt any book, let alone mm-hmm. a fantasy book, because they are so dense mm-hmm. and you have to leave things out. And it, it's even yeah. harder when everyone is staring at you expecting because they've read all these books voraciously and they have a very strong image in their head of what everybody looks like and what everything looks like. With mm-hmm. that in mind, how did you feel when you saw it the first time? And I know you're not like into the books as much. You've right. really come aboard in the movies. What was it that hooked you in when you first saw Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone? You know, it's funny that like, I think it is that Chris Columbus magic because to me, the thing that, yes, it's a amazing, beautiful, wondrous world because I had read the first book before I saw the movie. So I, I, like everyone else had ideas in my head of what this looked like. And yeah. I think his, whoever the, I don't know who the production designer was for that, but that seems like another person that he would have probably worked in super close contact with. And sure. He or she created something super, super impressive and magical. And, but I think that it's the way that he tells an emotional story, especially about a family, because if that movie hadn't hooked me in, in the first half hour with seeing how badly Harry was longing for a connection. He was longing for just any version of love. You know what I mean? He's not getting any love from anyone. He's a servant in this house living underneath the stairs and mm-hmm. coming out when they want him to do chores. Everyone's mean to him. They say terrible things about his parents and, for him to find out, you know, that that's a pretty magical story for him to find out not only that he is special, but that there is a place where he will belong and can make friends at like real friends, the kind that you make when you're a kid that you tell everything to and you go through all of those moments in life with and just setting us up with Harry wanting so badly to connect And then spending the rest of the movie giving us, yes, beautiful, magical creatures and locations, but also having that character just connect to people. That to me is what hooked me in on it. And that's that, that's that Chris Columbus emotional resonance that he finds in stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it was one feat and that is a team effort all around, obviously bringing it visually to life to the point where you go, Oh, this feels like. There's enough here that I connect to, mm-hmm. having read the book, which obviously he had and was a huge fan of it and insisted, you know, mostly British production crew and an all British cast, mm-hmm. like had a lot of reverence for the setting and, and world of the film. So it comes to life in a great way. Also, he's great at working with children. Yeah. There are few directors, if you look at just the collection of child actors that he worked with, it's a pretty great list and there aren't bad child performances in his movies. He knows how yeah. to work with them and get great stuff out of them. Maybe Richard Donner with the cast of the Goonies is the only person I can think of off the top of my head who is maybe not only as equal but a little bit better just because that movie is mm-hmm. is so good with all those kids, a lot of whom were already seasoned actors by that point. But still, you have to sort of pull it all together. Mm-hmm. I thought that there were part – the frustrating thing for me were all the things in the book that I liked that didn't make it into the movie. But sure. I recognize you have to cut stuff out. And I thought he did a fantastic job and he was the right guy to do those first two movies, which are way more family movies and it has to grow up and mature as the series goes on. Sure. So him stepping away when he did 
was also a good choice, even if it was made out of, listen, I have to see my family. It's been too right. long that I've been away from them. So but that's, but the third one is when things start to get dark anyway. Exactly. The real so, darkness starts to come in. Like, you know, the first one, it's lots of magical Christmas time things. Exactly. He's the perfect guy for that. And he stepped away at the right time for him and for the film series as well. I think that was the right choice. He doesn't have a bigger movie. No. On his resume in terms of box office success. Although mm-hmm. the other two are also huge hits and classics, but not Harry Potter level. Right. But he of success. If you think about it, that has the well, benefit of being a highly anticipated – neither of the other two movies were highly anticipated adaptations of something that everybody knew. So true. they were either going to sink or swim based on how good the movie was. And if you argue, well, he had Robin Williams for Mrs. Doubtfire, he also had Robin Williams for Bicentennial Man. And yeah. that was that was a Not box great. office failure. Whether yeah. yeah, whether the quality of the film notwithstanding, that wasn't a success. So that that doesn't mean – and especially that came off the the heels of uh, – this is a good time to shift into our second finalist, Mrs. Doubtfire, mm-hmm. which may be Robin Williams' best movie. He's pretty perfect in it. Again, get out of the way, Chris Columbus. Trust. He's a trusting director. That movie opens with Robin Williams in a voice booth. So obviously you and I are going to love that movie that it begins with a voiceover artist doing his thing in a San Francisco voice booth following along to a cartoon and also deals with, you know, a family that is breaking apart and trying to put it back together again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really fun. That performance from Robin Williams is great. Everyone in that movie is firing on all cylinders. Um Pierce Brosnan is great as the like the guy that you can't. He's basically Paris from Romeo and Juliet. You can't help but love him. He's just a handsome doofus. Right. And Sally Field is amazing in her mom trying to hold things togetherness of it. All the kids are great. The kids are great. Mars great in it. Yes. Yeah. And even like the side performances, like Harvey Firestein as the, and I don't remember who the other actor was, but they played the makeup artist uncles that turned him into Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. It's, they're fantastic. The way the movie was shot was Robin Williams would do like two or three takes mm-hmm. based on the script and then an additional 12 to 18 takes. Oh my God. Where he would just go, Chris Columbus would go like, all right, go for it. Let just do whatever you're going to do. And until they wouldn't stop until Robin Williams felt like he'd give it like, I don't have anything else. I feel like I've done the best I can with this scene. And then Mm -hmm. they would move on the moment where he's drunk and going back and forth and his teeth fall out into the drink Mm -hmm. was an improvised moment that nobody, the crew and cast didn't know, like nobody told them that it was going to happen. So you get to see their genuine reaction to things. And it takes a certain amount of, either confidence as a filmmaker, trust certainly the way you bring up mm-hmm. to allow those things to happen to say, hey, I know what I'm doing here, but I also know who I have here and that their ability to find and discover things is going to be a huge asset. So mm-hmm. that's what I saw that I loved in all the comedy clubs, how much energy he has. So they find a way to channel that. It's also incredibly sad. At- yeah, that's the thing. They, they channel that um, that he's so funny. He's so funny in that movie. Great laughs. But he's also like it's you know, it it's sad now thinking about it, knowing that he's no longer with us, that you know, 
ultimately depression got him as it has so many, but Robin Williams, like the sadness of that character and that he could, you know, we get Mork and Mindy Robin Williams in some scenes and we get Goodwill Hunting Robin Williams in some scenes. We get this combination. And again, I do think it all comes back to Chris Columbus trusting. Like it, yes. re- like as a director, so much of it is trust. And I think that's what makes him shine. That's what makes him excel and knowing how to pull these emotional scenes out of people. Yeah, I, I, I can't say anything else about Mrs. Doubtfire, except it's delightfully funny. It's a wonderful performance from Robin Williams in essentially two roles. That said, look, man, there's a movie on this trio that has won multiple episodes, I think, of this show. At, at least uh, one that is a per- an absolutely perfect movie. Yes. And that's Home Alone. It is Home Alone. No it's, one has directed Slapstick that well since Chuck Jones directed Wiley e. Coyote. <laughs> it's true. It's incredible. Joe Pesci, by the way, is in the movie because Chris Columbus is a fan. So once Macaulay Culkin was cast and they had Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, he had the freedom to cast people that he was fans of from their other work which mm-hmm. is how you get someone like Catherine O'Hara, someone like John Hurd. Those are people, you know, he was an SCTV fan. So yeah. he went and got Catherine O'Hara, who is 100% the emotional anchor of that movie. Yeah. And it's a great just like a great reminder of how fantastic she is and it was such a great role for her. The John Candy cameo which was filmed in one day in like t- literally I think literally 24 hours of filming. Mhm. Is such a great like just everything. It's like he's called on every every ability he has, and he's working with one of the biggest child stars of all time, mm-hmm. and helps him carry a movie by himself. Where the truth is, like Macaulay Culkin, who seems like from everything I've seen to have grown up to be a pretty cool dude. Yeah, have you seen him in his uh, his mask? He has a uh, yes. a COVID mask with. The that is uses the poster from the movie of Kevin holding his cheeks. It's great. I, anyway, I have it's fantastic. Yeah. Besides the fact that he's not a, a child disaster, like a child actor disaster story, which is which is great. There is a charm and a charisma to him. Mm-hmm. He's like not the best actor, not the best child actor yeah. in the world. He wasn't the best child actor working at that time. There's something about him that was sincere and relatable that made him just the perfect person to start. And Chris Columbus, again, gave him the environment in which to succeed. It's trust, man. Gave Joe Pesci a turn at comedy that he hadn't really had before. He was a, you know, he was the guy from Raging Bull mm-hmm. and the guy who would do Goodfellas in the same year, but, you know, brought him in and turned him into a slapstick comedian. And like everything, every, there's just no element in that movie that doesn't work. There yeah. just isn't one. It's the best third act of any movie in history, I think. Absolutely. But the first and second acts are great, too. The first and second acts are great, too. Yes. The whole thing. They set up everyone beautifully with the whole family. Uh, and again, you know, it, it's that Chris Columbus thing of family being ripped apart and having to come back together. So you spend the first 20 minutes learning about all of the family. And that's another one of those, like that rent moment I was mentioning. How do you do things in a concise way? How do you pack so much into a concise moment? You have the entire family in the first 20 minutes of the movie 
the night before they're about to all go on a vacation together. So you see how Kevin deals with every single member of that family. You see a little bit of how they deal with each other. You watch Catherine O'Hara do her thing. You know what I mean? It's yep. His economy is masterful. I would imagine there are people who, if they didn't know Chris Columbus directed it, they would probably guess that John Hughes did, which makes yeah. sense because John Hughes wrote the script. Mm-hmm. He also wrote the sequel, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, which mm-hmm. I rewatched this holiday season mm-hmm. and is actually a way better sequel than I remember. Yeah. But the fact that he's able to – I'm waiting for the new version to come out. <laughs> the fact that he's able to I, – I know. Uh, the fact that he's able to make a John Hughes script feel like a John Hughes directed movie mm-hmm. speaks to – again, to how well he connects to those – Emotional pieces. It's not, he doesn't have the advantage of directing something he also wrote so that he knows all the moments that he wants to pull off. Mm-hmm. This is him working with somebody else's script and being the best person to do it. It's hard to imagine like nobody, there's nobody else I can think of that could have directed that movie and gotten anything better out of it. I wonder the, based on I mean, the I'm whole sorry, chicken, what were you he saying? Ate the whole chicken. He, t- he got every piece of meat off the chicken yeah. and then turned the bones into tools. <laughs> yeah. He's got that chicken skin canoe. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he does. I wonder if part of it is that because you mentioned before, like with Adventures in Babysitting, that it comes out of that. A lot of that came out of Columbus being a Marvel fan. I wonder if it's the fact that he knows how to unapologetically be a fan of something and just the enthusiasm that a person who is good at being a fan has who focuses on the right things about a project and trusts the people around him. And he's a fan of all of these actors that he put in Home Alone. He's a fan of Robin Williams, so he lets him do 18 takes. He's a fan of the Harry Potter books that taught his kid how to read. So he comes to it from a fan's point of view. So he's almost like the perfect fan director of things. And yeah, I mean, you never really think of him in the pantheon of great. He's not on the Mount Rushmore of great movie directors because he doesn't have a visual style like Wes Anderson has. Or he doesn't have a Bernard Herman writing music that to accompany his crazy camera angles like Alfred Hitchcock had. But he's got his fandom and he lets people do their thing. And I would argue... Aside from it being a nearly perfect movie anyway, I would argue that it's that fan mentality that is the reason that all of these are great, but is the reason that in particular Home Alone is so good. Absolutely. And it's a brilliant Christmas movie, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting because the reason why John Hughes gave him Home Alone is because Chris Columbus was supposed to direct Christmas Vacation, but Chevy Chase had him tossed off of it. And John Hughes, of course, who is a writer – and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the National Lampoon screenwriters and the original is based off of an article that he wrote. That's what gave us Chris Columbus directing Home Alone. It would have been interesting to see what his version of Christmas Vacation would have been because, it, again, it's another family-heavy story. Yeah. But and family falling apart. Thank Spaghetti Monster for small miracles. Right? Are you a Pastafarian? I didn't know that. I'm open to it. We'll cover that on our best religion episode. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm Jewish, but I love spaghetti. So you tell me. Yeah. I Look, man, I get it. I'm Italian, Catholic, and I love latkes. <laughs> Especially gravas. Yeah. Which ones are gravas? Uh, they're the Andy Kaufman ones. Oh. You're welcome. 
Do we even need to debate these three movies, or did we no. name basically show, place, and – I really do think we named win, place, and show. I think the bronze medal – I th- honestly, we might be differing on where the who gets the okay. bronze and who gets the silver. I think that right. Mrs. Doubtfire gets the bronze medal. I think that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone gets the silver medal for all of the groundwork that it laid, if nothing else. But come on, man. We knew going in – I think what yeah. the greatest Chris Columbus movie. And by the way, Chris Columbus, the director, this is a mini episode of We Got This, is the best Chris Columbus. Yep. That's the, yeah, there's no, yeah. no doubt there. Yeah. No doubt at all. But yeah, I think that it's, it's a no brainer. Home Alone is a perfect movie. Well, then people of the world, let me say this. Hey, Chris Columbus, look what you did, you little jerk. <laughs> <laughs> You made a perfect movie. You proud of yourself? Now you gotta go share, uh, <laughs> you gotta go share a cot with the kid who pees himself, played by your brother. I can't remember his name. I can't remember I that remember. character. I just name. remember him sitting there drinking Pepsi. And, and now every time I watch Succession, I yeah. think of, I see Kieran Culkin sitting there waggling his eyebrows while drinking a Pepsi. Boy, did that kid turn out to be a great actor. Yeah, right? He's good. Oh my goodness. So good. But we digress. Yeah. It's Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. It's Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Congratulations, Chris Columbus, on your long and storied and still active career. You have no fewer than three or four projects currently in development or in production, according to IMDb, unless they're lying to us. Long may you reign. Look, not every movie that anybody makes is going to be a huge hit. But when you strike a vein, boy, do you strike it. And congratulations on making emotionally – relevant movies about families, about parents and children, and congratulations on making a perfect movie, which very few filmmakers have, but you did it. You gave the world the McAllister family on the screen in 1990s Home Alone. It is your best movie and maybe one of the best movies ever made. Ask Mark Evan Jackson. That's right. Asked and answered. Ah, oh, it's such a heartwarming, it's a short episode, but a heartwarming yeah. short episode. That's right. Yeah. This topic is closed, but there are many more to discuss. So please reach out to us on Twitter or you can email us at we got this podcast at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast. Thank you to producer Ken Plume, researcher Kate McManus, graphic designer Uri Kelman and QA engineer Jen Alba. And thanks, of course, to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks to you, the people of the world. You know, Chris Columbus. Did a lot of movies about bringing families together. And thank you for joining us and bringing this people of the world family together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Gagliardi. For Mark Gagliardi, I'm Hal Lublin. And don't worry, everybody. We We got got this. this. We got this. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.